Ephesians 2, let's begin with verse 11, which says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in, in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that Jesus himself took, went to the cross to take our sins upon himself, to give us new life in Christ, a new standing as accepted in the beloved one. And Father, we worship you and praise you and thank you this morning for, for that tremendous gift of love that, you show, that you've given to us, and for the salvation you provided for us, for the assurance of eternal life, and for the, all the blessings you, you've given us in Christ, for the promises you've given us in your word to guide, our, to guide our lives and direct our steps. And thank you, Father, that in those promises we find that you are a present God, a present help in trouble. You are God who is near, and Father, you're God who desires to walk with us, and that alone is an amazing thing. The eternal God seeking to walk with his, his created beings, sinners nonetheless. And Father, we're so thankful that in your word we find directions on how we ought to walk and how we can enjoy you and walk with you. And so Father, we come once again today before you to be taught of you, to learn more of the provisions you've given us, the promises you've provided, and the privileges we have in our walk with Christ. And Father, we pray that your spirit would, would direct in, our in the teacher and in the listener that we might learn the things you have us to learn. Father, you've told us you've begun a good work in us, and yet you'll continue it till the day of Christ. And Father, may we be pliable in your hands today. May we take to heart to your word, that you might make us what we ought to be. For Father, you've saved us to be a light for you. Father, you've given us a mission, and that's called the Great Commission. That is to preach the gospel to every creature. And Father, we pray that you would in inspire us and enable us and empower us to be those witnesses, to have a passion for the work of the gospel. For Jesus is truly building his church. And so, Father, equip us to that, that end, we pray today. And, Father, we do pray for our missionaries who've gone beyond the, the, our communities to the, to the world around us to bring the good news of salvation. Father, we pray that you'd watch over each one today. Use your word in a mighty way. And, Father, we think, too, of Emily's upcoming trip that you would undertake for this work in, 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 in Mexico as the word is shared there. And, Father, we pray as well for pastors that are preaching your word today all around our region or in our nation, Father. We just pray that your word would go out in its truth, Father, but it's only your word that can grow us. It's only your word that can bring light to us. It's only your word that can direct our steps, and may it be taught in truth and received in, in, as truth and faithfully lived out in our lives today. Father, we pray for those who aren't with us who may be struggling today. Maybe they have physical ailments, other trials, tests, and Father, we pray that you'd watch over each one. 
draw them to yourself, Father, and may they find their strength and their comfort to face life in you. So we're thankful for each one who's here. Thank you that we can gather together as a church family and worship you and study together. Be glorified, Father, as we approach your word. And may we approach it with a respect that would allow your spirit to make it part of our lives as we leave this place today. And it's for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Back to Leviticus chapter 23, to the text we've been studying, at least the springboard of our study. We have been looking at the celebrations, the feasts, the festivals of Israel. In, in, as listed in Leviticus 23, the seven major celebrations. And these were significant to Israel because we know Israel was God's chosen people. They were special people. But God called them to represent him. But in doing so, he continually had to give them festivals to help remind them of who they were, remind them of their identity, remind them of their God and what he did for them. And, and in these feasts, we not only have wonderful lessons, principles that God established, teachings that he laid down, but we also have then pictures that are carried over into the New Testament for us, and that's what makes this relevant to us today. It is not only our history, because we know the Bible came through the Jewish people. We know Jesus was was a Jewish Messiah, and uh, our history, our roots of our history are in, are in Jewish history, so not only are they significant in that way, but they're also quite significant in, in that the New Testament pulls these lessons, these analogies, these pictures, these types into the New Testament to teach us things that God would have us to learn as well, and thus they're delightful as we see God being able to set a festival in the Old Testament that carries so much meaning to us and these thousands of years later in the day and age in which we live. The next feast we come to is called the Feast of Weeks. It's also called the Feast of Harvest at Exodus 23. So let's go ahead and read verses 15 through 22 here, and we'll catch the essence of this feast. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of, of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The peace shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that is the holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What we find here in this last feast, the Feast of Weeks, is the last of the four spring festivals. Now, the seven that we are studying that are listed here in Leviticus 23, four are in the spring, three are later in the fall. And though they are separate festivals, they're connected. They are, they are, their schedule is related to the previous fes festival. And what we find here is another grain, uh, grain 
offering, a celebration of a harvest. And we're told that this festival occurred at the end of the wheat, wheat harvest. And according to what we read here, we're, we're told that it, it, it happens on a Sabbath, a Sunday, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. After they, we, as we studied last time, waved the first of the barley harvest as an offering to the Lord, the first of God's, of God's provision of grain and the barley harvest, the 50 days later, they were to offer this offering on the Sabbath. Today, or in Jesus' time, that, that, that Sunday was called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, 50 days later. And so, this, so it's connected but separate from those celebrations. And in verse 17, we see that we see these offerings were to be, put, were, were to be made of uh, two loaves, two loaves of bread, made from the grain that is harvested, baked with leaven in this case. Remember, and that's going to be significant, as we'll see a little later. Remember, the, everything we'd seen to this point had to do with unleavened bread because of the purity that it represents in our lives. But these were baked with leaven. And we're also told that, once again in verse 17, that they are the first fruits. The end of the verse says, they are the first fruits of the Lord. So we have this idea, once again, established in this festival of giving to the Lord first. And that's always a, a concept we see throughout scriptures, isn't it? it? It causes us to recognize where the sustenance of life comes from, who the essence of life is and who provides for our needs, and that we give to him first as, he, as we trust him to care for us. And that was always a challenge because just like anything, you know, the, the first is sometimes the best, isn't it? It's just like new milk. You know, those you've been around dairies know what new milk is. And, and uh, I was introduced to it not until I was adult, and uh, my wife's family's dairy farm and in the form of grupswa, it's called. It's a Finnish pancake. And uh, delicious, made out of new milk. You can make it out of regular milk, but not nearly the same as making it out of new milk. The fresh milk. And, and so it can be no doubt hard for those to give their, their, their best. You know, why not just give God the, the milk that's about to expire out of the fridge, so to speak? No, they were to give God their first. And as they put him first, as Matthew 6.23 tells us, God provides all the rest of our needs. Now we see also in verse 18 and 19 here, that as, it, as we consider the details of this, we see seven, excuse me, we see this, the, the accompanying offerings. Seven lambs, one young bull. These were also as a sweet aroma to the Lord with the drink and the grain offerings. We saw a kid for the goat's offering, for a sin offering. We saw two first-year male lambs as a peace offering before God because sinners need to make peace with God, don't they? It's one thing we need as sinners is forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And so there's a lot of offerings here given. And some people might ask, well, why all the offerings? What, did that, what is that all about? Why did God take these choice animals, these young and, and, and unblemished animals, the best of their flocks and herds, and offer them as a sacrifice. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's instructions God gave them that finds its roots all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? Because when Adam and Eve were created, they were created without sin, but we know they sinned against God, and when they did, they felt guilty. They sensed guilt right away, the guilt of, their, of the weight of their sin. Because when God came visiting, they were hiding from him. God had to call for them, and, and they were ashamed. They were naked. They had sinned against God, and God's resolution was to clothe them with animal skins. And he began to establish a picture of, of, of the result of sin, that sin requires death. It's a, it's a penalty that's required. 
because God's created beings had sinned and offended their creator. They'd sinned against God. They had disobeyed him. There was a penalty that had to be meted out, and, and yet that penalty for them was, was pictured here in the killing of innocent animals to clothe them with animal skins. And so they got, so God began to teach also the idea of substitution, the innocent dying in place of the guilty. And when Moses came along and God established the Mosaic Covenant, and you say, well, what's the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the centerpiece of the Mosaic Covenant is the Ten Commandments. But along with that, we find the sacrificial system. God continuing to teach, as he did throughout biblical Old Testament history, this idea of a, of a penalty being required for sin, but the innocent dying in their place as their substitute as acceptable. But the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, in the day and age in which we live, that at that time they did that day after day, year after year, but that came to an end. That came to an end when Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world. He died for sins once and for all and forever. And in the Old Testament, that sacrifice was often referred to as an atonement. And the technical sense of an atonement is a covering. The blood of those animals covered their sins. It's like sweeping their sins under the carpet. They were, they were simply a picture of what would eventually become forgiveness. And Hebrews once again tells us that those Old Testament sacrifices could never remove the guilt of sin because they didn't pay the, really pay the penalty. They were a temporary band-aid, band you might say, on the, on the problem of sin, and they were meant to point forward to the Lord Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he says, behold, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away once and for all and forever. That's, uh, I could, that's my addition. Sin. To take away the sin of the world. And when Jesus removed sin, according to Hebrews, he cleansed the conscience from sin because that penalty had been paid in full once and for all and forever. And so we find all these sacrifices, and they in various ways picture the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Now, verse 20 tells us, going on here, that these, the loaves were to, were to be waved before the Lord along with the two lambs. They were to, it was a wave offering. And what a wave offering is was an offering that was given to the Lord, presented to the Lord, and then given back to the priests. The priests and those who offered the sacrifices were allowed to eat of the sacrifice. That's what a wave offering was. They were given back, and that was one way that the priests got to eat because they were so busy in the temple, they didn't get to farm or ranch or be a blacksmith or whatever else, whatever other way people made their incomes, supported their families, and so one way they were supported was through these wave offerings, and food was provided. And so these, but these waves were first, these loaves and two lambs were first presented to the Lord. And then they were to have a solemn assembly once again. We see that in every feast, idea of a day of reflection before the Lord, a day of gathering of God's people to, to celebrate God and his goodness and his provision, and a time to reflect, a day to reflect on him. Maybe things much needed in our lives today is to set time aside, isn't it? To reflect on the things of God. And then the last, last part of this section in verse 22 lists their Old Testament model for charity. To provide for the needy. And they didn't harvest or harvest a corner of their fields or glean the leftovers. They left them for the poor. It was a way God would support those who were unable to support themselves. Now, there's a lot to the Feast of Weeks, but there is a picture of this in the New Testament. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's go to the New Testament then and, and focus a little bit then on the New Testament fulfillment 
and types that are fulfilled in Jesus and his church. As I mentioned, by this day the feast was called the, the Feast of Pentecost, verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And so this is, this, this is the day that they were to celebrate and offer the wave offering and have a solemn assembly, a time of, of, of corporate worship, and then maybe a day of reflection before the Lord. And on this day, we find the birthday of the church. That's what's going to occur, and it, that is going to be significant. The birth, the birth of the church universal, the family of Christ, the body of Christ, as being one in Christ. Let's read here the first few verses here. Verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's all the disciples mentioned in the previous chapter. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the miraculous thing that happened is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, what is, that, that's the significant thing here. The Spirit of God came, came and filled them. And that was unique because in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came, came and went upon, his, upon God's children for their times of service or special, special acts of service that call, God called them to. We know this because in Psalm 51, David, after his great sin, says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was something that David could lose, the enabling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes to be our helper, our comforter, the one who teaches us the word of God, the one who enables us to serve God. And he, ca he came and went. They didn't indwell every believer. But, then, but this event introduced a new reality, the reality we enjoy today, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in God's children. It began on this day. This is the birthday of the church when the church was united by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 9 tells us that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a child of God. If any man has not the Spirit of God, he is not one of his. And, that's th and therefore, we believe that the moment a person trusts Christ as Savior, they are indwelt by the, by the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the one who teaches and enables us to live the Christian life. And this was promised to the disciples, wasn't it? If you look back at, in to the previous chapter in verse 4, it tells us here, at, this is at post-resurrection, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, that is Jesus, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. And if you remember back to John 14, he promised that, they, that he was going to send another comforter who would abide with them forever. It was to be a permanent thing. It was, to, it was their inner helper. And Jesus says here, I've taught you this, now just sit still. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away and you just wait for your comforter, your helper to come. Verse 6 says, Therefore when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his authority, but you will receive power. So they're not going to know the schedule as far as the end times is concerned, but he says, you, Here's what I, you, I want you to know. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in the next verse, he ascends into heaven. And so, so God promised them during Jesus' ministry, and here Jesus reaffirms that, told them this is going to happen not many days from now, it's going to happen. But I want you to understand that when you receive him, you're going to receive power. You know, sometimes we read, look in the 
Gospels and read the account of the disciples, and they were kind of at times bumbling disciples, weren't they? In, 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 in failing to understand the things Jesus was teaching and carry out what he wanted. But he says, that's going to change. You're going to receive power. And the word power is the word we get our word dynamite from, dunamis. You're going to receive power, an ability you don't have. And in reality, this is a promise to believers, but it's what the world is lacking today. The ability to do right, the ability to change. Even people that are, that are uh, enslaved into various destructive behaviors, habitual drug abuse and whatever, find, find it almost impossible to change. Because there's no strength in the flesh. The Bible tells us that. We're weak in the flesh. But in the Spirit of God, we find power. We find ability. We find the strength when he in his indwelling. And, and the primary purpose, he says here, of that empowerment is you shall be my witnesses. That's what God wants to empower us for. Sometimes you see people who think that you know, they kind of have a selfish reason. They want to be empowered by God to do great things for God. For God says, I've got one reason, one one primary reason I'm going to empower you is so that I can prepare you, equip you, and enable you to be my witnesses because the fields are ready to harvest. There's people that need to be saved. And you might say if we look in our own lives as a church today, if there's not a passion of souls, there's something wrong with our relationship with the Holy Spirit because that's what he came to do, accomplish, to lay upon us the, the love of Christ for the lost so that we might win the lost to Christ. You know, this is repeated, this promise in Luke 24, 49. He says, Behold, Jesus said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. And that's likely a reference to the same event in Acts chapter 1. Well, go back to chapter 2. Peter's going to explain a little bit. Let's jump ahead to verse 14 here. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Before the, great, uh, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he explains here the, what's going to happen in the last days. And he refers to this prophecy given in the Old Testament book of Joel. And he says this is what's begun to happen. Now all these things haven't happened. But what, had, what did happen was the beginning of these things. The Spirit of God came upon them in, in, in order to enable them to be his witnesses. And therefore, Pentecost was the beginning, is when the Spirit of God came to unite believers together. Notice here, if we go on a little bit here, in verse 21, it, it says, excuse me, 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that, it should, that he should be held by it. And so on. And so, 
at this day of Pentecost, those who had trusted Christ as their Savior had, were indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it was the beginning. And if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we see that, as we read in our scripture reading, a little, more, a little bit more meaning to this, what occurred at this time. While you're turning there, I'll mention this. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says this about this indwelling of the Spirit. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now notice this is a spiritual baptism. It's by one Spirit we were baptized into one body. It is, and the word baptism, baptized, really means an identification in the Bible. Don't ever miss that. Sometimes it's dry in the Bible. Sometimes it's wet in the Bible. But it talks, the word itself means an identification or an immersion. And here he's talking about our identification with one body. We're baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So one of the effects, the results of the birthday at a, that began at the birthday of the church in the indwelling of the spirit is that it united all believers into one body. Unity, oneness, was a result of the spirit of God we're indwelt by the Spirit of God and therefore identified with Christ. We've been made to drink into one Spirit. It doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile, slaves or free. And therefore, Pentecost was the beginning. It was the birthday of the church. It was the beginning of the universal church, the family of God, those believers who have trusted Christ as Savior. It unites us as one in Christ. And then in here in Ephesians chapter 2, where it's explained to us what that involves. And the backdrop to this, as you see in this passage, as we, as we read it in our scripture reading, the reference to two becoming one, was that this identification with Christ, this indwelling of the Spirit, resolved a major problem, a major social problem in the days of the early church. It was a, it was a bias that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, we sometimes hear Jews and Gentiles referred, referred to today. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. But in Jesus' day, in the days of the early church, there was a bias. There was an absolute animosity between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews thought the Gentiles were lower-class citizens, underprivileged. They called them dogs. And at that time, dogs weren't considered cute little pretty pets. They were street dogs ravaging pests. And it was a derogatory term. And the Jews resented them and despised them for it. You see, what happened is the Jews thought because God chose them that they were better than the average bear. And God reminds them in Deuteronomy 7, he said, I didn't choose you because you're better than the average bear. That's my terminology, by the way. You don't find that in the Bible. But I'm paraphrasing. He said, I chose you because you were the least of all people. Because you were, you were the least I chose you. Because I was going to demonstrate my power and my love through you. But they took it the wrong way and, and, and let, it to, let it inflate their egos. And everybody else was underprivileged if you weren't a Jew. It was quite a bias at that time. And it was a problem in the early church. Because though the gospel first went out to, to Judea, remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they were going to witness to Judea, the Jews primarily, it was going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, the Gentiles. We see that prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Gentiles were going to be partakers of the blessings of God. But that created a problem in the church. Because the Jews had strict regulations about eating with Gentiles, about gathering with Gentiles, about going into their houses. And God took, took measures in this way to, uh, to address that. 
And he accomplished it by making us believers, Jew or Gentile, male or free, slave or, slave or free, excuse me, all one in Christ. And in fact, just jump ahead, look at chapter 3, verse 6. This is a lengthy discussion. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. In fact, this is such a big problem. In Acts chapter 15, we see Paul, after one of his missionary journeys, coming back to Jerusalem to meet with the, you know, the fathers of the church, the first church, the, 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 the mother church, so to speak, in Jerusalem, and says, we have a problem. Gentiles are getting saved. And there's Jews that don't like it. And they had a big discussion. It's called the Council at Jerusalem, and they became aware of the fact that God has also called the Gentiles to salvation. That's how bad it was. They thought God was just going to offer salvation to the Jews, and they came to realize, well, I guess God's offering salvation to the Gentiles too. And that, was a, and, and that unity, the basis of that unity is found in our standing in Christ. And that's why verse 11, where we began our scripture reading in chapter 2, says that remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, which are called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. That was a derogatory term. And so the, Jew, the Gentiles were outside of those, the blessings of Israel. They were at odds, and God resolved that and through his Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28 says this, For you are all the sons of God, all of you, it doesn't refer to any kind of nationality, gender, religious difference. If you're a son of God, you're a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what unites us, faith in Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means you've been identified with Christ, you're a Christian, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And therefore, by way of application, we, un we can be understand that it's only Christians who understand the word of God that can address the problem of prejudice in our lives, in our cultures, in our countries. Because we recognize we're all one in Christ. There is no status or standing or, or social strata. And by the way, when we think, consider race, the Bible teaches there's only one race. We call it the human race. Acts 17.26 says this, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. One blood. There's one race. There's different levels of melatonin in our skin, different family characteristics. There's different families, but there is one race. And so in God, in, it is in God alone that we find the resolution to that such a terrible problem of mistreatment based on differences, race, gender, religion, whatever. We find the basis of that unity in Christ. So how does that relate to the Feast of Weeks? Have we lost our way here in our discussion? No, in reality, it's significant because remember in the Feast of Weeks, now called Pentecost, two loaves were waved, and the two loaves were were uh, made of, of leavened bread. Leaven represents sin. And what that represents to us in a beautiful way is that God was going to bring together as one the Jew and the Gentile sinners. Because that's what the church consists of. There are still people in the church that are ethnic Jews, those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, and there's Gentiles who have trusted Christ as Savior, but both are equally sinners. And they're united. And the fact that the birthday of the church happened on the day of Pentecost puts that together. 
it points out to the fact that these two loaves that were being waved on that very day, these two leaven loaves, and the Jews understood that leaven represents evil and sin, that it represents the uniting of two peoples at war, at animosity as one in Christ. And, and therefore, perfectly picturing the truth, the, the church. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? That God would give them this lesson in the Old Testament for various reasons and have the birthday of the church occur on the day of Pentecost to bring home this lesson that we are all ones in Christ, sinners saved by grace. Now also, and there's much more in this picture, we recognize that the, this wave offering was offered with two lambs as a peace offering. And I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 5. Because these two lambs represent the way we have peace with God. You know, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that humanity, sinners, are at war with God. We're going to see that in this chapter. And whether, you, whether we see that in demonstrated or lived out in the sense of our departure from God or simply in the, in the aspect of there's only one God we curse in, in whose name we curse today, all represented the fact that we're aware in our consciousness of a God who created us, but we are at odds with him as sinners, until we come to trust Christ as Savior, because sin has taken us away from God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And those two lambs pictured the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. They pictured the fact that we needed peace with God, both in our salvation and in our fellowship. And that is provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 6, if you will. Notice it says, when it describes us, for when we were still without strength, that means we're weak apart from God's help. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And all of us here qualify. We are ungodly sinners, weak sinners. Verse 7 says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so we have kind of an ugly picture of mankind painted here, isn't it? But it's honest reality. Before God, we are weak. We are without strength. We are ungodly. We, we are sinners. And we are enemies of God. That's, that's, that's the nature of man in our relationship with God. And we need reconciliation. That's what's mentioned here. We need reconciliation. And that happened. That peace occurred through the blood of the cross. Because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He paid for our condemnation on the cross. He removes that, that, that problem of sin and offers to us the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of eternal life, and an ongoing relationship with God. And that happens through the Lamb of God. And we have access, according to verse 2, into that grace through faith. 
It's something we accept by faith alone. God freely offers to you and I reconciliation to him. You know, when two people are at war, at odds, reconciliation is a meeting in the middle. And there's that, you know, there's this old country song about meeting in the middle. That's, and that's how we view it. I'll say I'm sorry if you say I'm sorry. You say it first and I'll say it. Well, maybe we'll count to three and we'll say it together. But with God, he didn't have to move because it was you and I who sinned against him. But he freely offers to us forgiveness. He's not asking anything of us. No penance. No special works we have to do. He just says, you know what? I'm going to restore the relationship by offering my son to die in your place, to pay your offense, to pay your penalty, to offer his blood on the cross and to rise again so you so that I can offer to you forgiveness, the basis of forgiveness. And we can be made reconciled, made right with God. We can have peace with God. What a tremendous thing that is, isn't it, people? To go through life knowing you're at peace with God because Jesus died for you and for me. And we can face death with a certainty that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have this picture of the of the. Of the wave of the, excuse me, the two loaves that picturing the Jew and the Gentile becoming one in Christ because of the blood of the Lamb who made peace with God. It's a peace offering. Jesus was a peace offering that brought us into right relationship with God. And so these things occurring on the day of Pentecost was significant to the early church. You know, we see some other parallels from pictures or types fulfilled from this feast in the church today. We saw, saw a reference in Leviticus, Leviticus 23.18 that, that there was a sweet aroma of the drink offering. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now while sometimes the drink offering which was poured out on the burnt offering was made up of aromatic um, um, ingredients that offered a sweet aroma, God often refers to burnt offerings as a sweet aroma, not because the burning of animals smells sweet. You know, that's quite the opposite. What in the world is he talking about? It's sweet because the sacrifice took care of the sin problem. It's because people gave sacrificially to God. It's because the sacrifice was made. That's what God was pleased in. And yet, the drink offering often accompanied that to picture that sweet aroma of God being pleased that sin, the problem that separated him from mankind was being taken care of, that man could go on in fellowship with God and know God and enjoy God. Well, that is carried over to the New Testament. It's in reference to the sweet aroma of sacrificial living for you and I. Once we are redeemed, we become one in Christ as Jew and Gentile, as one church, one body, we're to live sacrificially for the Lord together. Philippians 2.17 says this, yes, Paul says, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad to rejoice with you all. Paul recognized that his offering of being a witness for Christ, being an apostle, the foundation layer of the church, one of the foundation layers of the church, that sacrificial service was just like a drink offering. He was accompanying the primary offering, which was Jesus Christ. And he was willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, to bring the good news of the gospel to the world around him. He's being poured out. And that's a sweet aroma to God. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says this, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 
For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the unsaved, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? You see, we're meant to be the aroma of Christ. And as the Spirit of God empowers us, going back to this analogy, to be his witnesses, to carry the good news of Jesus Christ, and as people see the love of Christ in us as we give of ourselves and our time and our energies and our focus, because that's the theme of the church. We are under the Great Commission. We're not commissioned here because we have a constitution in, in this community or in this church or in this building. We're, you, we're, we are commissioned under God's commission, the Great Commission, to win the lost to Christ, to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples. That's what we're here for. And when the Spirit of God empowers us and enables us, we can smell good when we fulfill that purpose. We're to give off the life of Christ, and as Christ lives through, lives through us to shine his light to the world around us as we open our mouth for his glory, there is an aroma, a spiritual aroma that emanates. So as Christians, we either smell or stink, by the way. Smell good or stink bad. I probably am terrible grammatically in that statement. But you get the picture, because the flesh doesn't smell so good when we live for ourselves. But when we are willing to live for Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God, as one body in Christ, as one church in Christ, moving out for the gospel, we can give off an aroma. And every church has an aroma, by the way. Because you and I are to live sacrificially for Christ and to smell good to the world as they see Christ in us. And that's why Romans 12:1 reminds us that we are the sacrifice. We're to present ourselves a living sacrifice to God. And therefore, we are to be that offering as we serve Christ together. What a wonderful thing to be part of a church family, to fulfill the Great Commission, and to reach a loss for Christ together. There's one more analogy that I don't want to miss over here, and that is in the end of the instructions for the Feast of Weeks, was their charity section. You know, verse 22 tells them not to reap the corn of the fields or glean. They were to provide them for the poor. And that's a tremendous picture of the ongoing life of the two loaves, you might say, of the church united. It's just the inspired by the Spirit of God is to also minister to the needs of those around us. It's this a, you know, when this feast ended, there was a gap of four months before the fall feast began. And many believe that gap of four months in a, in a Jewish year represents the church age in which we live. And a, a day and age in which we are to provide charity or service to one another. Galatians 2.10 says this, They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing for which also was eager to do. Galatians 5.13 carries it a little further where it says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, but only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. The normal expression of the church united by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God to be witness for Christ is to not only to serve the lost in the sense of bringing them the good news of salvation, but to serve one another. That's what a family does. It upholds, it ministers. I often call it our edification ministry, the privilege of fellowshipping together in the church, to lift one another up, to encourage one another. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day of approaching. And that's what the church is charged with. As we shine as a, good, as a, as a aromatic 
expression of Jesus Christ. We're, to sa we're saved to serve. And we serve the, the unsaved by, by providing for them the good news, the good news by ministering to the poor, and we serve the lost by exhorting one another, gathering together as a family to stirring up the love and good works. And th therefore, this, this feast of the weeks is a tremendous picture of Jesus and his church, of the unity we have in Christ, of the privilege we have to serve, and the expression of the church who enjoys fellowship with their Lord and expression of serving Christ together. You know, we maybe scratch the surface a little bit on, the, on, the, on this analogy today, but this is real. This is what God wants for us. He established it by type in the Old Testament celebration of the Feast of Weeks. He carries it over to the New Testament and its instructions God gives us today to be, be united as a church in serving Christ together. I couldn't help but think of these verses in Titus, maybe just here in closing, I guess, today. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And those special people are the people united together in Christ. And we need to be zealous for the things of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this lesson today, Father. And it may be sometimes hard to understand all the analogies, all the types that are fulfilled in the church, Father. But thank you that you have given us of your spirit to unite us as one body in Christ and to enable us to serve you. Whether it is to be witnesses, to minister to the poor, or to minister to one another, Father, you've given us of your spirit. Father, may we consider these things and how we live our lives, that we might fulfill not only this picture, but even the expression of the life of Christ, the empowering of the Spirit of God, that together as a local family here, that we might serve you effectively, that we might together have a passion for souls and a desire to see people one to Christ and a, and a, and a, and a hunger to even encourage and, and each other in fellowship and lifting one another up, to exhort one another, to stir one another up. Father, may these things uh, be fulfilled in us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit and in your grace. And for your glory we pray in Jesus' name.